are continuing our study in the book of Mark this morning in a message that we're calling Keep the First Things First. Keep the First Things First. Uh, in 1989, uh, Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Some of you may have read that book uh, because it sold 40 million copies worldwide. So a pretty good chance somebody in here uh, has read that book. And so uh, the big idea uh, is, is the, the seven habits that, that, that highly effective people uh, engage in that make them highly su successful. Uh, chapter three of that book is called Put First Things First. Put First Things First. And the big idea of that chapter uh, is that highly effective people know how to identify and prioritize the things that are the most important. And so they're not spending their days, you know, putting out fires, managing crises, all these kinds of things, because through proper planning and prioritizing, uh, they've already avoided uh, these crises that, that crop up for most people who don't put first things first. And so this book, Seven Habits, was so successful that in 1996, uh, Covey wrote a sequel uh, to this book called First Things First. Uh, another 384 pages about how important it is uh, to put the most important things first. Now, I'm telling you this, of course, because we easily, you and I, become slaves to the tyranny of the urgent, right? We're constantly uh, putting out fires, dealing with crises in our lives. We, we know, we know that the most important thing in our lives is to worship God, uh, to become more like Christ, to serve his people. We know these things. But what happens? Instead of prioritizing God, we're rushing to put out one fire after another. Uh, we, 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 are, we become slaves to the relentless tasks and the clamor of everything that, that demands our attention. Uh, and sometimes we forget to put first things first. And we become reactive rather than proactive. And so if we don't put first things first, if, if we don't intentionally make God the priority of our lives to put him first, to love his people first, we will easily become ensnared by all the chaos of life. Now, in our passage today, a scribe comes to Jesus and asks him which was the most important commandment. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees had determined that there were 613 commandments in the law. Uh, 248 of those were positive, things that we must do, and uh, 365 of those were negative, things that we must not do. And so uh, those laws, uh, among those 613, they divided those into categories as well. There were heavy and there were light. Uh, those that were heavy were the ones that demanded more obedience or more attention, and those were light, uh, well, maybe not as much as, as the heavy. And they argued and debated amongst themselves about which ones were the heavy and which ones the, were the light and how heavy and how light, uh, dividing these things into various categories. And so they spent their days living in the minutia of, of dividing out and parsing up these various laws. And they became so burdensome uh, that they spent their lives trying to keep them and ensuring that others kept them as well. And so they became slaves uh, to this ranking system and, and to the tyranny of the law and their traditions that they kept. And they lost sight of God. They lost sight of God who gave the law. And they certainly missed Jesus, their Lord and Messiah, who God sent to save them. So they failed to put first things first. And so what Jesus does here is he helps the scribe cut through all the morass, all the, the ranking systems, and all the mess that they had made of the law. And he cut right to the heart of what was the most important. Put first things first. Worship God. Love others. 
You know, that's been our tagline at Grace Redeemer ever since this church was formed some 13 years ago. Love God, love others, right? That is a simple four-word summary of what the law entails. Love God and love others. And so today, we're going to look at this passage, and then we're going to examine our own hearts. Are we doing this? Are we loving God? Are we loving others? Am I, me, am I loving God? Am I keeping him first? Am I loving him with my whole mind, heart, soul, and strength? And am I loving others as I love myself? Let's read the passage first, and then we'll dive in. Uh, Verses 28 to 34. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So let's begin by asking who the scribes were, right? We spent the last couple messages talking about who the Pharisees and the chief priests and the Herodians and the Sadducees were. Well, the scribes were another religious group uh, in Israel during Jesus' day. And scribes in ancient Israel, uh, they were learned men whose job it was to study the law. Uh, Sometimes they were hired to uh, copy scriptures uh, or copy other documents that needed copying or to render interpretations of the law. This was what their job was. And so uh, Ezra, who you'll recall, we studied the book of Ezra, I think it was last year. Uh, He lived 450 years before Jesus. Ezra himself was a scribe. And and the scribes took their job of copying and preserving scriptures very seriously. And we should thank God for that because it is through uh, the preservation of scripture by faithful scribes and through God's providence uh, that we have God's word today. Now, by the first century, uh, many scribes, uh, not all, but most of the scribes were, in fact, Pharisees. And so they were teachers of the law, teachers of the people, and, and, and offered interpretations of the law. But oftentimes, their interpretations of the law uh, went beyond Scripture, and so they added man-made traditions uh, to the law. And they kept this law meticulously, but they ignored the spirit behind the law. And eventually, uh, the importance of the traditions of men even eclipsed the importance of the law. You remember in Mark chapter 7, Jesus called them out for this, right? He, the, the, the man was dedicating his wealth as Corbin, which means it's given to, uh, for use in the, in the uh, temple. Uh, well, what that did was it dedicated that money to the, the use for, for the use of the temple, but that meant that they couldn't honor mother and father uh, by giving to their parents who were in need. So their man-made tradition ended up eclipsing uh, the value of the law. And so Jesus called them out for this because they were not putting first things first. Their man-made tradition had, <clears throat> in fact, become more important than the law. Now, this scribe, he was among these scribes and Pharisees who invented and developed this ranking system of the 613 laws. So he, he, his question as he comes to Jesus, 
does not have the ill will, or so it seems, uh, that the previous questioners had had, right? The Pharisees came, the scribes, the Herodians, uh, the Sadducees, they all came to Jesus looking to trap him. But here it looks to me, anyway, like this was not a trap, but, but an honest question. Uh, maybe he realized the mess that they had made of the law and, and he wanted Jesus to help untangle it all. And in fact, uh, the reason I say that, that he came with honest intention is that Jesus didn't commend, uh, condemn him. In fact, he commended him uh, for asking uh, the right question. So Jesus' answer cuts through all the morass, all the, the entanglement, all the man-made ranking of laws uh, to the very heart of the matter. And so what Jesus does is he goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 5. The Jews called these verses the Shema, the Shema. And the reason for that is that the first word of Deuteronomy 6.4 is hear. Hear, O Israel. And the Jewish word, the Hebrew word for hear, is Shema. And so it's called the Shema. So uh, from Deuteronomy chapter four, uh, uh, 6, verses 4 to 5, the whole of the text is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall, ha- you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So Jesus recited this verse and to remind them that the Jews, this was foundational to their faith. Those of you who were with us back in the days when we were worshiping at Etzkaim, you may remember that there was a wooden plank. Do you remember that? Across the front of the, of the, of the, of the wall of the, of the stage so that everybody who looked up at the stage could see the Shema plainly written there, engraved in wood. And I thought that that was really neat. Showed their messianic roots and yet that they were still believers. So the Shema, it's foundational to their faith. Why? Well, the Shema says there is one God. Now, that may not seem like a very big deal, but in that pagan world, that was a very big deal. Uh, This was not the beginning of monotheism, of course, the Shema. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, But the Shema was part of the way Jews obeyed the commandment to love the Lord your God and to have no other God but him. And so they recited the Shema to remind themselves, don't worship other gods, obey God's commands, teach them to your your children. So that's part of the reason why the Shema was so foundational. Another reason is that it told them how to worship God. This is not a a half-hearted worship of God, a casual relationship with God. This is worship God with every fiber of your being. Love him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, the Jews by Jesus' day had come to uh, worship the law more than God and to love their man-made traditions even more than the law. And so their theology was completely inverted. Uh, They should have worshipped the God of the law, not the law of God. They, They missed God who gave the law. And their fanaticism turned them into hypocrites because uh, they became hypocrites because of the heavy burdens that they laid on others uh, while not keeping them themselves. So they didn't keep God first. Now, if we're looking for any kind of hint of a test from this scribe, perhaps it is to see if Jesus uh, was actually orthodox in his beliefs. And Jesus showed himself to be the most possible orthodox that he could possibly be, that you worship God and you love him only. And that is uh, what the the scribe uh, would have known to to mean the foundational part of their faith, worship God, love others, uh, and then the rest of the commandments flow from there. Now, we are 2,000 years removed from the first century and Jesus' conversation with this scribe and first century culture. But 
we know from living in the culture that we live in uh, that, that the temptation to worship other gods is, is stronger now than ever before. Uh, we have so many temptations. So many are like the rich young ruler uh, who are torn from God by, by the riches, the wealth uh, of this world. Uh, they are in love with their money. Others, because of pride, uh, refuse to submit themselves to God. They love their sinful lifestyles. They love uh, what they do, and they will not uh, surrender and give their lives over to God. And others love their works. Some people are trying to get into heaven by their works. In fact, we would have to say that they worship their works. And, and I say that because they are relying on their works as though their works were enough to get them into heaven. They worship their works rather than worshiping God. So Jesus said, verse 29 and 30, you must love the Lord God alone with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. So we ask ourselves, do we love God this way? Is God first in our lives? Do we give him our best time? Do we give him our best tithes and offering? Do we love people the way he asks us to love them? You know, many people uh, may be spiritual for an hour a week, right? The, the Sunday morning, 10 o'clock hour, they're super spiritual during that hour. But then from Monday to Saturday, you can't tell that they are believers in the faith that they profess. And it's not always easy to do this, is it, right? It's very hard to put others before ourselves and to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Jesus has been clear so far in the Gospel of Mark about what it means to be a disciple, how we must love God and love others and all that that costs. It's all about self-sacrifice. It's not about self-advancement. And so we, we love God by humbling ourselves and by serving him and by putting him first. Now, before we move on to the second part of Jesus' answer, let's talk about this idea that God is one, that God is one. Doesn't this deny the Trinity? How can there be a Trinity if God is one? Well, this is interesting because the Hebrew word, uh, language actually has a couple of different words uh, for the word one. Uh, one of those words is the word yahid. It means one and only one, uh, like a child who is the only offspring of his parents. So, for example, from Jeremiah chapter 6, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Mourn as for an only son. So we have this word, yahid. There's another word uh, that is used in Hebrew that means one, and that is the word ehad. Ehad can be translated like Yahid, one and only one, uh, but it also can mean a unity of more than one thing that makes up the whole. So, for example, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, a man is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And so we see that a husband and a wife, though a plurality, two people merge into, they become one. There is diversity within the unity of marriage. Now, the word yahid is never used to describe God in the Hebrew scriptures, but the word ihad is. And in fact, ihad is the word that is used here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So there is one God consisting of three persons, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each sharing the same essence, each equally God. Now, there is a difference in the function of the members of the Trinity. Each has their own function, but there is no difference in their substance, in their essence. They are all God, three people, three persons within the Trinity, one God. So Jesus wasn't denying the Trinity by saying God is one. He was, in fact, validating it. And I think that's really neat that he used this Deuteronomy passage that is foundational to Jewish belief to make that point. 
Now, let's look at the second part of Jesus' answer. Uh, Jesus gave the scribe more than he asked for, right? Two for the price of one. What's the best commandment? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you two. Uh, the second one uh, is quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus shortened that too. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> now in Israel, ancient Israel, uh, neighbors were considered fellow Jews uh, and foreigners who were coming in visiting from other lands. And we know from reading Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that Jesus expanded the definition of neighbor, right? Remember, uh, uh, a man was beaten on the side of the road. A Levite walks by. A priest walks by and a dreaded Samaritan, the wicked, evil, awful Samaritans. This is the man who helped. And, and, and the man who asked the question, the lawyer who asked the question, was, was forced to admit uh, that it was the one who helped him uh, who was a neighbor. Well, uh, this is what the Samaritan man did. He bandaged him. He put him on his horse. He took him to an inn. He paid his expenses. That is how he loved this man. And so we express our love for God, not only by loving those who love us, right? Anybody can do that. Uh, he, he expressed love by, by uh, loving even somebody perceived to be an enemy, and that's what we need to do. Uh, even those who we perceive as enemies, we have to love them as we love ourselves. Well, what does it mean to love yourself? How do you love yourself? How do I love myself? Well, I know what I do. I make sure that I'm comfortable. I make sure that I'm clean. I make sure that I'm well-fed. I make sure that I'm housed uh, and clothed. Uh, all of these things are, are how we love ourselves. Uh, we look out for number one, right? Uh, and, and we put our families first. We prioritize them over others. And, and that's a natural thing to do. But God wants us to look for other people and love other people the way we love ourselves, to make sure that they are comfortable, clothed, fed, housed. We are to love people as ourselves, to show them God's love. And Jesus' answer shows that love for God and love for others are inseparable. We show our love for God by loving others. And when we love others, we are loving God. We cannot separate these two. Uh, we can't say we love God and then have no regard for others. And we can't uh, be with people uh, and, and express the love of God without having the love of God. So these things are truly inseparable. And Jesus said of these two commands now, th there are no commands greater than these. And it's interesting that, that the first command, that you love God and love him only with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, that is a summary of the first four of the Ten Commandments. And to love others as yourself is a summary of the second six of the Ten Commandments. And so all the other commandments are contained, subsumed within these two commandments that Jesus gave. So keep first things first. Obey these two commandments, and then you are obeying them all. And you don't need this ranking system. Obey these two, love God, love others, and you will, you will obey them all. And so at this point, verse 32, the scribe validates Jesus' answer by saying that he was right and he repeated the commands back to Jesus again, though slightly differently. Uh, and the emphasis, though, though he doesn't repeat it verbatim back to him, we see the emphasis is on love. Two times he mentions love, love for God and love for others. And that shows Jesus that he gets it. He, he understands that these are the two greatest commands. And he, he goes on to say that, that these two are greater than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, burnt offerings and sacrifices were a means to atone for sin. 
When people sinned, they had to bring a bull or a lamb or a goat or some animal to the priest to sacrifice to make payment for their sins. And the blood of the animal washed away the guilt of that sin. Now, the reason the two commands, love God and love others, are more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices are that if they obeyed those two commands to love God and love others, they would not sin and there would be no need for a burnt offering or a sacrifice. So better not to sin than to sin and then have to follow the law of atonement for sin. And the Old Testament verifies this in several places. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God commands Saul to go and destroy the Amalekites, destroy every one of them, destroy all of their stuff, destroy all of their livestock. Well, Saul goes out and he destroys most of the Amalekites, but he allows uh, their leader, Agag, to live. And Saul, uh, Samuel says, if you've killed them all, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears, right? Saul had brought the best of the stuff back with uh, him and the best of the livestock and the best of the, of the personal items. And when Samuel calls him out on this, Saul says, well, I was bringing them back to sacrifice to God. Uh, and Samuel doesn't buy that at all. Uh, and this is what he says. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And so if you obey these first two commands, love God, love others, then that's better than burnt offerings uh, and more important than the other commandments. So we must keep the first things first. Uh, so the scribe understood that, it seems. And in verse 34, uh, Jesus saw that he answered intelligently. And he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Well, what does that mean? Uh, in my mind, every time I read this verse, uh, you can be close to the kingdom of God, or you can be far from the kingdom of God, but what those two have in, co in common is that they're not in the kingdom of God, right? So what's the difference how close or how far you are? Uh, if I challenge you to swim across uh, Lake Louisville, uh, and you swim a half mile, and then drown, and then I swim a uh, hundred yards past you, and then drown, uh, what is the difference, right? Neither one of us made it. What's the difference which one uh, got closer? You know, you and I all know people who seem so far from God, right? They are hostile to God. They hate religion. They love their sin. They are as far from God as they can be. And we also know people who seem very close to God. They are just so sweet and nice and helpful and sacrificial. And uh, they might even call themselves spiritual, and yet they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at those two, the very far and the seemingly very close, is there any difference if the Lord should return today? Well, the answer is no. Uh, they both would be outside the kingdom of God. But we thank God for his grace, right? There is nothing, nothing is impossible for God. I was among the very far, the very furthest that you could possibly be, and yet God can do an amazing thing uh, in a person's life uh, when he chooses to move that person towards salvation. So we have to recognize that, that nothing is impossible for God. He can save the far. He can save the near. In fact, he moves us from far to near uh, and finally to salvation. Uh, from a human perspective, we can look at salvation on a sliding scale, uh, something like this. Uh, to be far from God uh, is negative five, antagonistic, right? That's about as far as you can get. Negative four, you're getting a little closer. You're still resistant, but not as bad as antagonistic. Number three, you're indifferent. Okay, you know, not hostile, but not really seeking either. 
Number two, you're receptive. You're, you're interested in hearing more. And three, uh, I'm sorry, minus two, receptive. And then minus one, actively seeking. You're looking, uh, trying to find out more about, uh, about God. I was on that scale. I can track my own progress from negative five all the way uh, to salvation. I'm not sure where the scribe falls on this particular uh, chart, uh, probably somewhere between minus two uh, and minus one, somewhere between receptive and seeking. He's close. He's receptive. He's seeking. But what does he still lack? What is he still missing? Why is he not yet in the kingdom of God? Well, he has still not yet believed the good news that Jesus has come. Uh, And Jesus says to him that uh, repent, Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus had not yet died and risen from the dead, right? And so what was this scribe to believe? He wasn't going to believe the gospel as we know it because Jesus hadn't yet died and risen from the dead. But Jesus wanted this man to believe. When Jesus came, he preached and he said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He wanted this man to recognize his sins and follow Jesus. Now, for this scribe and anybody else who was paying attention in first century Israel, Jesus had already done and said more than enough uh, to let anybody who was remotely interested in God to know that there was something special about Jesus, something different about Jesus, something that was worthy of investigation as to whether he actually was the Messiah he claimed to be. Uh, And so the scribe appears to be seeking. He appears to be seeking, and Jesus wants him uh, to believe uh, that he is who he said he is and to repent and follow him. Now, Jesus, when he gave this message to the scribe, remember, we're in Passion Week, right? We're only a couple of days away. Jesus is just two or three days away from the cross uh, at the hands of his enemies. That's when he had this conversation with the scribes. Uh, the scribe. A few days later, he voluntarily laid down his life to pay the penalty uh, that not only the scribe, but that you and me and everybody else who ever lived deserves uh, for our sins. And then God the Father raised Jesus from the dead to show that he was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. And he sat Jesus at the right hand of of him uh, and his work was done. Now, we live on this side of the cross. We have more revelation than the scribe who Jesus was talking to during the Passion Week had. We know uh, that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, in his sinless life, in his atoning death, in his victorious resurrection. Salvation is not by good works. It's not by heredity. It's not by anything else. It is by faith alone. And so as we look at this simple diagram, we can see that this, this man is not far from the kingdom of God. Did he ever make it in? Well, Scripture never tells us, does it? We, we don't get an answer to the question. Uh, if I were the scribe, I'd like to have, think, have thought that I would, I would say to Jesus, well, w- w- wait a minute, uh, I'm close, I'm not in, what do I still lack? And maybe Jesus would have said at that point, repent uh, and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, we don't have a record that he did it then. Uh, but a couple days later, Jesus would die, and then he would rise again. And maybe, maybe this scribe received the good news, uh, believed, and was saved. You know, all we can be sure of, you and I, is our own decision. That's all we can ever really be sure of, is our own decision. Have we believed that Jesus Christ died for our sin and rose from the dead? Do we trust Jesus alone for our salvation, and not in anything we do? You know, the only question God is going to ask us when we stand in his glorious presence one day is, have you believed in my son, Jesus Christ, for your salvation? And if the answer is yes, you're in. You're not far, you're not close, you're in the kingdom of God. 
And so being in the kingdom of God, our duty now is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as we love ourselves. Well, how do we do it? Let's wrap up by asking the questions I asked at the beginning of the sermon. Uh, First, do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, what kind of criteria should we use? How do we know if we're loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, let's ask a few more questions. Are we spending time in the word and with God and in prayer? The only way to know God is to spend time in his word, to spend time with him. Uh, God talks to us through his word. We talk to him in prayer. He speaks to us back uh, through his word. And so that is how we, we develop a closer relationship with him, how we grow deeper in our walk with him. And so if you love your spouse, you want to spend time with him or her. If you love God, you want to spend time with him as well. All relationships take time and effort to grow. So do we, uh, are we spending time with him? Do we worship and praise him? That's more than just showing up here on Sunday morning and singing some songs and listening to a sermon, right? That's way more than just that. Uh, It's letting God change our entire uh, selves, changing our minds, changing our behavior. It's orienting our entire lives to God's will and conducting ourselves in accordance with his character. So we love God not just on Sunday, but from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday, right? Consistency is the mark of somebody who truly loves God. We show our integrity in all things. We always reflect God's character. We maintain an attitude of gratitude for all God has provided. These are the things that show that we love God. So do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? These are meant for for self-reflection. So think about this during the week. And secondly, uh, do I love others as myself? Well, here's some criteria to evaluate the answer to that question. Are we forgiving and compassionate people? Colossians 3.13 says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do we do that? Do we forgive as the Lord forgave us? Or are we quick to anger, always holding grudges and seeking revenge? Are we willing to sacrifice for each other, not just our best friends, but even those uh, who we don't love, uh, who might be called difficult or even unlovable? Some people uh, could fall into that category for you. Do we live not to be served, but to serve others? Uh, As Jesus repeated throughout his long walk from uh, Caesarea Philippi down to Jerusalem, uh, the section we called On the Way in Mark, uh, Mark chapters uh, 9 and 10, uh, the hallmarks of a disciple are that uh, he who wants to save his life must lose it for the sake of the gospel, that whoever wants to be first must be last and a servant of all, that Jesus doesn't live to be served, uh, but to serve, that a true disciple responds in faith and follows Jesus like Bartimaeus, and that he gives his entire self uh, to serving God by serving others. And these things are much easier said than done, aren't they? They're much easier said than done. And I'll tell you that I don't ask these questions to indict you because I am convicted myself. I often say to others, uh, to you, uh, I preached that message to myself today and I hope you got something out of it. That, that is my preaching uh, style, because I am preaching to me first and you second. Uh, and that is, uh, th- these verses are convicting to me. I'm often selfish. I am often seeking my own comfort. I often don't love God the way I should. It's a daily battle uh, to love God and love others as the scriptures require. So I ask these questions to raise our awareness that loving God and loving others is not a part-time job. The bar is very, very high. It's very high, and we do it by modeling our lives after Jesus. 
who died on the cross, showed his love for God by obeying him going to the cross, showed his love for us by obeying God going to the cross for us, dying a humiliating death in our place. Now we're going to fail from time to time because we are sinful people, but we should notice that we become less selfish over time as we orient our lives more to God and what he wants from us. And so we just pray to God, Lord, forgive us of our sin of loving ourselves and failing to love you and love others as your word requires. And when we fail, we know that Jesus' death on the cross pays for all of our sin, past, present, and future. And so for the believer, for you and I, loving God and loving others are continuing commandments for the people of God. And when we fail, God is so gracious to continue to show his love and grace for us because we have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so there is always forgiveness at the foot of the cross for us. His grace and his mercy are never ending for those who love him. So we love God. We love others. That is putting first things first. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we are convicted this morning uh, because we know that we don't always love you and put others first the way we are, uh, the way we should, in light of Jesus's sacrificial death for us, Lord. Lord, help us. Lord, convict us. And Lord, I pray that uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will change our hearts so that we would love others and, and, and love you uh, even more every day, and that we would show this in the way we live uh, and in how we serve others. Lord, I pray that it would be so in each one of our lives. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.